0: If you have a Bible, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to cover most of chapter 2. We'll skip around a little bit, but we'll end up in chapter 3 at the end of our time. Tonight, we got a really great Bible study. If you weren't with us last week, you just missed a, an introduction that we'll get you caught up on really quickly. Uh, and, and I want to kind of set the table for us um On on the condition, or based on the condition that we found Israel in last week. So, if you've ever wondered, or if you've ever wanted to feel better about our um, generation—not that you should ever feel good about things being bad—but if you want some some encouragement tonight, I think we can find some. Uh, If you want to have a better outlook for our future, First Samuel might be the perfect book of the Bible to study, Uh, and this might be the perfect series uh, for us to hear tonight. So, the condition of Israel at this point in history is as bad. As it could ever get. And it got pretty bad in the future still. Uh, But the condition of Israel at this point in history is as bad as it could get. And and there wasn't really an Israel yet, honestly. It was just a segmented group of tribes who had a shared connection, who were all descendants of Jacob, descendants of Abraham. But they really weren't united. They weren't really uh, coming together under God's covenant like God had told them to when they came into the land. Joshua set them up for success. He said, hey, unite together, work together, uh, join together and build something together and let God. God use you to spread the gospel or spread the good news and his light to the world. Yet they all went their separate ways and they began to not only separate from each other, but they separated from the Lord. With regard to God and his will for them, he was really the last thing on the majority of Israel's mind. And if you remember from last week... It, the scene that First Samuel opens up to is a pretty depressing, grim situation uh, in a couple of different areas. First off, the religious culture of Israel was very poor and very corrupt. It was very, it, it was half-hearted at best. We had people, you found people who were just going to worship out of routine. They, they went yearly, they went seasonally. It wasn't sincere. They didn't really have a relationship with God. They only went to check a box. And we'll find out tonight even more that the pre the priesthood itself was really in bad shape. Uh, the leadership of the of the house of God was very pitiful and and, and quite honestly pathetic. The, the moral code and the family unit were really a joke at this point in history. Uh, so far from what God had uh, showed them and willed them and intended for them to, to conduct themselves with. So if you ever think that there's no hope for our generation, for America, uh, in the world that is 2023... Go back and read the judge's generation. Go back and read the early days of 1 Samuel. Hardly anybody worshiped the Lord from a place of sincerity or passion. The ones that claimed to be religious were going through the motions. They were hopefully trying to keep God at arm's length. They didn't really want him involved in their lives. Uh, and, And if you did go and attempt to worship the Lord, you would find a priesthood that was dead and really making a mockery of what God began with Moses and Aaron. As far as the moral code and the family unit, men had total disregard for God's design for the family. Uh, Treating women like commodities, trading women like they would trade livestock, having multiple wives, no real relationship with their wives, no relationship with their children. And and, and the men in those days were driven by lust and and self-glory. Young boys didn't really have much of a chance growing up in the shadow of men who were completely given over to their flesh and to their lusts. Women and, and girls face the steepest incline any generation of women ever have faced. And it wasn't just an Israel thing, it was a whole world thing. And it would be the way the world was for thousands of years until the church would spread an influence of love and, 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 and a new standard. But, but Israel was supposed to be different, and Israel was supposed to be better based on how God showed them in the law, but they were no better. Women in these days were at the mercy of men, owned practically and and judged entirely for their ability to bear children. So not only was there a moral breakdown, but there was this widespread sense of indecency and disrespect from person to person. So again, if you've ever given up on our generation or been told that it can't get any worse, I just want you to think again. And I, I don't say that with glee. I don't say that to say that things aren't bad or things shouldn't get better. By all means, things are pretty poor uh, morally and ethically. By all means, things need to be, uh, there needs to be revival in our land. It's awful how, how far the world has gotten from where God wants it to be. Uh, it, it, it's pitiful, the spiritual and moral condition of our world. But, but my point is this. If there was hope for the people in the land of Israel three thousand years ago, then there's hope for us. If there was hope for this, this this Israel that we find in 1 Samuel, we open up and it's this messy, embarrassing situation. If there's hope for them, there's hope for us. Remember, we looked at that story in Judges, where where the people were expecting God to wipe them off the face of the earth because they had they had never seen such immoral indecency in the land. They thought it was like what they had heard about in Egypt and Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know how God responded to those pagan lands. So the people of Israel knew how bad things had gotten. So when somebody says it's worse than ever, when somebody says there's no hope, they're just fear-mongering. Honestly, if I can just be blunt with you. And I know we do this from a genuine place of shock and disbelief and weariness. And people, we wring our hands and we pull our hair out. I get it. And I'm not making light of how how corrupt and poor things may be. I just want to shine the light of God's Word because I don't think it's right for the church to fan this kind of flame. I don't think it's right for the church to make people feel hopeless and, and, and completely, uh, you, know, uh, you know, doomed. I, that's not what we should be feeling and how we should be feeling So when someone says or when we think that there's no hope, I want you to open your Bibles and I want you to read the condition of Israel in the book of Judges and read 1 Samuel 1 where polygamy is the norm. And again, we talked about this last week. When when you read in the Old Testament that a man had many, many wives, there's that thing in us that says, that's just how it was back then. Well, that's not okay. Just like it's not okay for things to be the way they are in today's world. We, we often look back at the old days and think, well, that's just how they were back then. I guess God didn't mind it. Of course God minded. Of course it was an affront to God. Of course it broke God's heart. Just like things break his heart now. But the point is, if God was able to work in those days, can't he work in these days? We open up the chapter and there's a family going to worship and, it, and it's a man with multiple wives right? I mean, it's, it's it's just, it's almost like you, you think, is this a joke? No, it's not a joke. It's what the standard was. Polygamy was normal on top of other, uh, you know, immoral sexual lifestyles that were running rampant in the people of God's nation. So, my response to someone who says, I don't think it could get worse, I, want you to, I would ask you, have you ever read how bad things were 3,000 years ago? Have you ever read how corrupt and distasteful the priests were? Remember what happened when Hannah went to pray at the altar last week? The, Eli mocked her and thought she was drunk. He was the one that was far from God, but that was the kind of people that were in charge in those days. Have you ever heard how most of the Hebrews didn't even worship God from a genuine heart? It was just all, it was all show. It was all formalities. And can you believe that this was the broken generation? It was was this broken generation that God began moving pieces into place to raise his kingdom off the ground. This was the generation that God said, okay, these are the people I'm going to make a difference through. This is the generation I'm going to build my kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. So don't give up so easily and quickly. Don't lose heart. Be burdened, yes. Pray earnestly, yes. But don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't give Satan the victory. Don't, rent, don't surrender to evil. Fight against it with endurance and faithfulness and patience. And I want to talk about how we fight against it tonight as we get started. We learned in week one, that's exactly what Hannah did. Hannah, the woman who had been replaced by, because she wasn't able to have kids. Hannah, the woman that was mocked by the priest at the house of God. Hannah, who was completely at the, at the lowest place you could get uh, for a person in her generation. She was dependent on a man who didn't really care for her, who replaced her. She was at the mercy of a priest who made fun of her. Yet she is maybe responsible, solely responsible for things turning around for her generation. Now, of course, God's the one that made, brought revival and God's the one that raised up more people. But the Bible is clear. Unless we pray, unless we seek him, unless we empty ourselves of this world and its lust so that we can be filled with his love and passion, then God isn't going to move in our generation. There's clear reminders in the Bible that unless the people of God pray, there will not be change in our world. Proverbs 15:29 write this one down if you haven't heard it before. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Do you know that God pays attention when you pray? God listens to you. The God of the universe who has millions of things going on at all times. God who is omniscient, can hear everything at one time. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm talking to multiple people at one time, it doesn't work out very well. I'm very distracted when I'm trying to listen to someone on a screen and someone in a room and I'm trying to talk someone else is texting me or something. I don't do well when I'm trying to have a conversation with multiple people. And and that's not a weakness of mine. That's just a weakness of all of people because we are really only made to talk to one person at a time, if you know what I mean. But in our world today, we're very overextended. We're trying to email people and text people and call people and talk to people and listen to people all at the same time. Doesn't work out very well, does it? Our attention can only handle so much. But the good news is God does not have that problem. When God's people pray, God stops what he's doing and he listens. God hears the prayers of the righteous. So, Yes, Does God, is, God, is God pleased with wickedness? No, he's far from wickedness. But when the righteous people rise up in the wicked generation and start to pray, God listens even still. Luke chapter 11, Jesus said, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks will find. The one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, he's not just saying, hey, I'm a genie in a lamp, rub it and get what you want. He's saying, if you want to see me make a difference in your world, if you want to see me move in your world, I'm, I'm literally just a knock away. I'm just an ask or a request away. He goes on to say, how much more will your heavenly father respond with his Holy Spirit when you ask, when you seek, when you knock? James, the brother of Jesus, said, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You know how prayer works? It doesn't stop. Prayer works in that it's persistent. So I think we could go on and on. There's hundreds of Bible verses that you can find that pretty much echo those same same things. But I think it's clear. If we want to see God move, our hearts must first be moved. So people who have not been moved to prayer and are not on their knees praying and they're complaining about the world, hey, I don't really have much remorse for them because they must not really want to see God move because they are not being moved. Their hearts are not being moved. They are not praying. God knows whether we're sincere or not. God knows whether we actually want Him to move or not. So when we get desperate enough, we'll pray and we'll seek and we'll put Him first. I think... We all agree on this, but maybe we've never heard it said this way. Sometimes it takes a rock bottom generation for it to dawn on the believers that we need to pray and get on our knees and seek God's face. You hear me? You you, you want to know why? And and, you, and I've said this before, but this is so. Tr- I think it's so true and it's humbling. You know why that, that America, which you know, founded on Christian principles, has been filled with Christians since the very beginning. You know why there's never been more than maybe 10 or 15 years of uninterrupted prosperity in our country? You know why? Because we can't handle that much prosperity and that much peace and that much success. We can't handle it. I wish we could, but we can't. You go back and study the history of America ever since 1776 or the, you know, the late 18, uh, 1780s and early 1790s when the country was actually formed. There's never been more than 10 or 15 years of uninterrupted prosperity and peace. You know why? The same reason why there was never that long of, of uninterrupted peace and prosperity for Israel. Or for any nation that claims to seek after God. Because it takes us hitting the bottom sometimes to get on our knees and call out to God. Even the most righteous and the most devout get lazy in their prayers. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all grown a little bit complacent and a little bit lax in our prayers. Yet it takes us getting knocked down a few pegs to get on our knees, right? I wish it was different, but that's just how our flesh is and we need those reminders. So so let this world's chaos and troubles lead you to pray, not to panic. So when you turn on the news tomorrow, and, and I hope this doesn't happen, but when something bad happens tomorrow or next week or next month or next year and you feel like it couldn't get worse, whether it's a law that's passed, a, 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 an attack that takes place, or something that you feel like is a sign of the judgment of God or the, the people turning away from God, which there are, going to, there are plenty of those signs out there now and there's going to be plenty more, just to be honest with you. So whenever you turn on the news or whenever you see a headline and it makes you feel a, a pit in your stomach, it makes you feel like you have no hope or we have no hope, I hope that you'll remember this, this, little, this little quote. Let the world's chaos and troubles lead you to pray, not to panic. Because if the people of God don't pray and if the people of God panic, then what hope is there for the rest of the world? Hannah, with a lousy husband, pitiful excuse of a priest, discouraged from calling on God, remained persistent and pursued the Lord even still. So what did she pray for? For God to give her a son. Why did she want a son? Because she knew that in her situation, the only way she would really gonna, she was really going to impact her generation was if she had a child and that child had a fresh start. She knew that her situation was too complicated. She wasn't complaining about it. She wasn't mad about it. She said, God, I need you to give me a son. And I believe that son can make a difference in this nation for your glory. And if you give me a son, I'll give him right back to you. So God gave her a son. She named him Samuel, which means on loan, to the Lord. So she turns around and says, "God, he's yours. May he be a, a, an agent of change in this generation." So I want to start tonight. I want to get into the word tonight in chapter 2, and I want to read the prayer that Hannah prayed after God gave her Samuel. So this is really a prayer of of it's a praise, but it's also her kind of prophesying or, or it's her kind of preaching to us about her own faith. And for us, it allows us to learn what to apply from Hannah to our own hearts and how we can be like Hannah. So while Samuel gets all the credit for turning the nation back to God, a few chapters from now, Samuel's going to be the one leading the people in revival, the thunder of God up behind him as the people begin to pray and seek the Lord. Samuel gets the credit. Samuel's name's on the book. But Hannah is the one that got the ball rolling. May we never forget it. First Samuel two, Hannah prays and says, "My heart rejoices in the Lord; my horn is exalted in the Lord." And my horn is a Hebrew phrase for kind of my uh, my my hope and my you know a good kind of pride, as in, "Hey, I, God has done this," in a way of praising God, a way of uh, a way of exalting Him. I smile at my enemies. Because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, this is a big deal. Because what is your first instinct towards your enemies? It's not to smile at them. Hannah, and Hannah didn't really have enemies, as, as, as we think of enemies. Hannah had some people that she could have been mad at. Number one, her husband, right? He replaced her i don't know how that would go over in our world today right i don't think it'd go well at all and and if you've been through situations like that i mean i have i have uh, you know obviously compassion for you because that's never easy when families get torn up and things happen hannah had to live in a world where it was legal to get married as many times as you want to if you were a man so hannah wasn't just her husband didn't leave her he just added someone else to the family i mean she had to live with that she couldn't leave she had no rights so you can imagine and remember that that lady was making fun of hannah for not being able to have kids. Meanwhile, the, your husband's leading, leading them to worship acting like there's nothing wrong. I mean, that's how tone deaf he was. So Hannah could have been angry at him. She could have been angry at, at, at his other wife. I mean, this is all, it's all twisted to us, but this is what she was living in. She could have been angry at the priest that made fun of her and said that she was drunk and she was crying at the altar because she was sobbing and she wasn't legible. So he just thought she's out of her mind. She could have been angry at a lot of people, couldn't she? She could have been angry at all the people in her generation that made bad decisions, that made bad choices, that passed bad laws, right? She could have been angry at a lot of people, yet she wasn't. So how do we smile at our enemies? How can we respond to those that are against us or those that are not for us like Hannah did? We do what Hannah did. Romans 12, 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If there's one area that Christians struggle in the most, this is it. (laughs) Because we want to roll our sleeves up and we want to do what the world does. We want to get even like the world gets even. We want to use our mouth and our tongues and our actions to do worse than the world did to us. We want to take power and we want to make people suffer for the things they did to us. Uh, a A believer, however, turns their situation over to God. And you know, social media and electronic communication has made it easier for us, uh, or or let me say this, has made it harder for us to deal with this because we get to see other people gloat about their victories. We get to see other people kind of, you know, boast and stick their chest out when things go well for them at our expense sometimes on a national level, on a family level, you know, we get to see people and we get more angry, right? Because we get to see it on all different ways. We're not just in our own little corners anymore in this world. Uh, But, but, even more as we are tempted, we've got to make a decision. I am not going to go on their level. My response to evil is to pray and ask for God to work in my life in a way that can counteract the evil that they are doing. So, if we want to be effective and productive, we'll pray, we'll pray, we'll pray. And that doesn't involve ha- that doesn't involve or doesn't require that we have to get up in other people's faces and tell them how wrong they are and what they've done wrong to us. We don't have to do that and stoop to their level in fact jesus said when you pray go into your room and shut the door pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you so the, so translation you don't have to go and, and, and get in all these you know tur- uh, all engage in all this strife and all these fights and all this animosity because there's some things that you're just never gonna some situations there's never going to be good that comes out of them Hannah could have meddled in the, all the different areas that, that offended her and, and bothered her and had done her wrong. Yet how did she respond to that evil? She prayed, she prayed, she prayed. Everyone doesn't have to know what you think or what you're going to do when you're not happy about a situation. Sometimes the best way to fight against evil and against sin is to go in your room, shut the door and pray and let God do the heavy lifting. I know some people say, Justin, and we mentioned this last week, that prayer might sound passive, but prayer is not passive. Prayer prayer is how we ensure our next step is God-breathed. We've talked about this before, but James James, the brother of Jesus, says that the anger of man or the anger of a person never produces the righteousness of God. So when we, want to, when we want God to move, we've got to go to him and pray, and we've got to decompress all that stuff out of us. We've got to let our flesh be drained of that instinct and of that impulse, and we've got to allow God to speak through us and move through us. Verse 2 and 3, Hannah says, No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there a rock like our God. Talk no more very, so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is God. The Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. We often can be all talk and no game. Wh- whatever move we, in- we take ends up being fleshly driven and only call causes further conflict. But if we're going to do what God's word says, we've got to start responding to the, word, to, to, to the world in the right way. If we let things that bother us, us fester in our hearts, and we begin to let that get on our minds, and we begin to let people get under our skin, we begin to conceive our own plans, we just are gonna make a bigger mess. So Hannah says, I lived in an unjust world, I lived in a perverse generation, but rather than rolling my sleeves up and trying to get even and trying to respond to people, one-on-one, person-to-person, I just got on my face in front of God and I let him do all of that. And you can't argue with the results, can you? Because we know the end of the story, don't we? It's because of her prayers that God gave her a son that she lent him to the Lord. It's because of how Hannah went about in her generation. You can't say, well, if Hannah should have done something more or, 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 or of greater impact. I don't think so. I think what Hannah did was exactly what she needed to do and exactly what many of us need to do because that's what brought about the change in not only in her life but in her world. Look down at verse 7 and 8. The Lord makes the poor, makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. God doesn't have to put us on a level playing field with the world in order to bring about change. I just got to say this to a lot of us that are waiting. We're waiting for God to elevate us to a level that others seem to be on because we see other people succeeding and prospering, and, and we we wonder, hey, why why aren't we where they are? Why aren't we at their level? God doesn't have to do that in order to make a difference in our life, in order to use us. In fact, God may very well be doing the opposite of that, as in he raises us up from the ashes and from the, uh, from the dust. He uses us off the scene. He uses us off the stage. He uses us when no one expects for him to use us. Do you think anybody expected Hannah to be the one that God worked in, her, in his, that generation? The last person they ever expected God to use was the woman who had been replaced and the woman who had been mocked at the altar, the woman who couldn't even have a child, the woman who had no rights on her own. No one expected Hannah to be the one that God made a difference through, yet that's exactly what God did. Matt Chandler talks about how God works in and brings change out of the margins of society, If you don't know what margin means, margin is that side of the paper that you never use, right? Remember in grade school or in school, you had the, the little red lines. You just didn't write on those margins because that was trying to teach you to stay in the lines. The margins is where we don't expect anything good to happen. We don't expect anything important to be. But it's in the margins of society that God often raises up people like Hannah, people like us, God's not working in the big, bold center of the page. He's working in the margins. He doesn't have to be in the powerful position. He doesn't have to be in the center. There's this idea in the church that God's people have to be rich and successful and powerful and famous. That's not biblical. Can God use people in power? Yes, but he rarely does. You know the stories in the Bible. It was Moses who was in power but was taken out of power who then became the deliverer. It was Daniel who was destined to be one of the kings of Israel but was taken as a captive to Babylon who then became a messenger to the king. It's always people on the margins that God uses. Jesus wasn't anything great in his day and age. He was a carpenter. He was a rabbi. He called fishermen and tax collectors, zealots, outcasts, nobodies, to be on his team. God prefers using downtrodden, barren women, shepherd boys, and slingshots to magnify his power. God is not the least bit dependent on human or worldly greatness. There's this talk in the political world that God needs the right people in power and the right people in office. If we're not, if, if he doesn't have the rich and the successful and the powerful, then he's not able to make a difference in the world. That is not the Bible. You know that. We know that. In the New Testament, Old Testament, God's always working in the margins to make a difference. The reason you and I are here tonight is not because some worldly great person did something for us. It's because Jesus was crucified by those worldly powerful people. Right. So be encouraged tonight. If you feel like you're always in the margins of the world, that might be a good sign that you're right where God wants you to be. Verse 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his saints. The wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So these verses are meant to encourage us. If our attempts to serve God are not recognized by the world, we must trust that God will have the last word. The wicked will not when in the end now the next passage is contrasted uh, contrast Hannah's righteousness and purity by teaching us about the corruption of the priesthood and, and and I just want to read verse 12 and then I'll explain what happens the sons of Eli were corrupt they're the priests by the way they did not know the lord now, let me explain what goes on next because it's kind of confusing because we don't really speak the language that they're talking about, sacrifices and fat. So in those days, you, if you were going to the temple to offer a sacrifice, um, you, would, uh, you would burn the, 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 the meat on the altar, the fat would be purged, and then a portion would be given to the priest, and then he would cut it up and give a portion back to you for you and your family to eat, and then he and the priest, the priest would take that and, 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 and eat it, and they would offer a portion to the Lord. And, and these days, the, the priests would just meet you at the front of the temple and they would say, what you got? Well, I got this lamb that I'm supposed to do what Moses said, which is take it to the altar and then separate the fat from the, from the rest of the, the, the body and then broil it and then separate the certain parts of the animal and then you take some and I take some and we give some to God. And the priest would say, whoa, 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 let's, let's just do it, let, let me just do it all. Let me just have it front for you. You can go on, God bless you, good night. Let me just have an animal. Now, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to us as to why they would do that. But essentially, the priests were not really there to serve the people. They were just using their platform to serve themselves. I think that becomes a little more relevant for us. They were just using the ministry to make a name for themselves and to benefit from it themselves. We're told in verse 12, they didn't know the Lord. So that's the problem. They weren't doing this for God. They were doing this because they had been born into it. So this is a message to anyone who sees the church as a platform to exalt themselves. And that's, that goes on a lot in the church, unfortunately. So many people look at the church as a way to look holier than thou, to gloat and revel in their own righteousness over and against others. The church, not and obviously preachers, but not just for preachers, for people in the church, often the church becomes this way for people to show up and say, hey, have you heard about me? Have you met me? Have you seen what I've done? And we do this because we're not trusting them for Jesus to save us. We're trying to save ourselves. We're trying to find our own righteousness to the point that those who come in humbly to seek the Lord They're overshadowed and they're looked narrowly upon. I can't say this more blunt. There is no room in the church for egos or pride or arrogance. None whatsoever. Now, you can tell these, these two stories are back to back because Hannah is the picture of humility. Hannah is the picture of someone at the mercy of God and humbly coming before God. Meanwhile, the priests are the people that don't even need God, don't even want anything to do with God. They're just trying to exalt themselves. You can read how Jesus dealt with the religious of his generation, but here's the perfect parable that sums it up. He told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So he says, hey, you guys that run the church, that run the temple, you guys think that you're righteous and you look down on others that come in that are humble and downtrodden and beat up and just want to ask for God to help them. You want to make, you, you make them feel bad because you know, they don't you know, look as good as you or, or haven't done as many good things as you or, or overtly, openly, publicly good things, good things. He says, I got a story to tell you. Two people went up. To the temple, to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, everybody in the audience already already knew how this would go. The Pharisee is a good man. The tax collector is a bad man. Which does God like? God likes good people. God doesn't like bad people. The Pharisee is a good man. He tithes. He doesn't doesn't break the law. He's he's always dressed well. The Pharisee is going to come to God and give a report on all the good things that he's done. And God's going to smile and say, I'm proud of you. That's what they thought. The Pharisee came in and said, hey, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I mean, what kind of prayer is that? But people do this in church today. I'm glad I'm not like those people. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. I, I, I fast twice a week. I tithe of all that I got. I mean, this guy, he's, he's I mean, we, we say he's a piece of work, but in his generation, he was applauded as a righteous man. Meanwhile, the tax collector shows up, and he couldn't, he wouldn't even lift his head up to heaven because you, you know how much sinning he's done lately. Of course he's ashamed to be in the house of God. And someone heard him mumbling, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, guys, I, I, I got to tell y'all, I think the way you th- interpret this story has been wrong. I, I think the way you've been interpreting people, the tax collector and the Pharisee, I think you've had it mixed up. Because I'll tell you what God sees. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's here's the point. God has zero tolerance when his house gets turned into anything but a level playing field for all sinners. Jesus said this. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, all the people? But you have made it a den of robbers. Now the reason why he refers to a den of robbers is they were selling, they were taking people's sacrifices, just like Eli's sons were, and they were saying, "Oh, this isn't good enough. You need to buy another one because it's not unclean like yours." But but you know you know what you should think about when you hear that phrase, robbers. Jesus talked about people that enter the sheep gate by another way. Remember that story? He says, if you enter by another way other than the door, by faith through Jesus, you're a robber or you're a thief. As in, you're trying to get to God based on what you have done, not based on what he has done. So when the church turns into a place where people boast about how good they are and how much they've done and look down on those who may not have the same accolades as them, the church has turned into a den of robbers. So let the warning of of Eli and his sons, let that warning be a, 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 a message to us who are stewards of the church. So the scripture says that Eli rebukes his sons. But meanwhile, growing up in the temple or in the, in, under the, the, the ministry of Eli, in verse 18, we're told that Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child wearing his linen ephod, which is just a priestly garment. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring, him in, bring it to him year by year when she came with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So Samuel is growing in the Lord But there's this contrast that Eli and his household are corrupt. Down in verse number 27, a prophet comes to meet Eli. Now, this is the first prophet mentioned in 1 Samuel, but remember that God has been using Hannah and Samuel. We finally meet a prophet. But Hannah and Samuel had already been... Servants of God. So that should encourage us who might not be in the prophet category, but we might just be normal Hannah and Samuel, God used them first. The man of God came to Eli and said, thus says the Lord, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest to offer upon my altar to burn incense to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifices and my offering which I commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me and make yourselves fat? with the best of all the offerings of Israel. So they were using the temple, they were using the ministry to exalt themselves, to, to gloat of themselves without a true regard for the lost world. Most of all, they thought, they, they thought that they were better than the rest of the world just because of their position. Church, i, I got to say this. Peter t- taught us this in Acts That we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord just as they will. That as a church, we must never forget that we're all saved by the same grace. And if we don't lead from that posture, then God will replace us with a generation that does. Because God's going to say to Eli and his sons, I'm done with y'all. Once Samuel gets old enough, you guys are out the door. And not just out the door, he kills them. One day we'll do a message on people that God killed because he literally puts Eli and his sons to death. That's how serious God is about communicating the right message from his house. We'll wrap up chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no ride sped spread revelation or vision. It came to pass while Eli was lying down and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, Eli's vision is a, is a symbol, is a picture of the whole nation being blinded. He could not see. And before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle where the ark of God was and while Samuel was lying down. So we're told here that the lamp had not burned out yet. And, and that doesn't mean it was going to burn out. That just means that it was still burning against, in spite of, the corruption of the priest. Things were dark in Israel in those days. Rotten at the very core, the temple and the priest were corrupt. Eli's vision growing dim was symbolic for how blind the nation was, but we're told the lamp of God was still burning. The flame was enduring. The scriptures tell us that a young altar boy was responsible to go into the temple every night And put more oil on the manure. And every morning to go and make sure the lamp was burning. Who do you think was the one keeping the lamp burning in this story? Samuel. Samuel was the altar boy. Who his job was to make sure the oil never runs dry in the manure, in the lampstand. Samuel was the one holding out hope that God had not given up. It was God's commitment and Samuel's faithfulness that kept the flame burning. So we read the story of how corrupt Israel was, how corrupt the priesthood was, yet the flame was still burning. Do you get the message? The flame was still burning. So church, we can't give up. We started this message out talking about we can't give up. Hannah didn't give up. Samuel, as a young boy, Learn from his mother. We don't give up. Even though the priest is corrupt, his sons are corrupt, I'm here to be an anchor for my generation. I'm here to keep the oil in the lamp. I'm here to make sure that I don't give up. So, no matter how discouraged you get, how frustrated you get, how difficult it gets, if our eyes are on God, then God's eyes are on us. If people between us and God don't do what they should do, they're not bigger than God. The priesthood failed that generation. They were corrupt. They were bad people. They were lost people. But they didn't get in between Samuel and God. And they shouldn't get between us and God. So I got to ask you a question, a couple questions. Do we have what it takes to keep the light burning, the lamp burning, the flame burning in our generation? Are we enduring and persevering like Samuel did, like Hannah did? Are we leaning on Jesus while everyone else is leaning away? The message of this the story, the story in the, the text goes back and forth. Hannah to Eli, Eli to Samuel. It does that to let us know who the heroes of this story are and they're not the ones you would expect them to be. Do we have what it takes to keep the lamps burning in our generation? If it was up to us, to pray, to keep the oil in the manure? Do we have what it takes to do that? Not that we've done anything or we do anything, but we have to just be faithful. God's done the hard work. God's done the hard part. We just have to keep showing up. Not in buildings like this, but every day when you wake up, pray, seek the Lord His lamp hasn't burnt out yet, and it's not going to burn out if we keep praying and seeking his face. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the reminder of your commitment to us. Lord, we don't always stay committed to you, yet you never forsake us. You never turn away. But Lord, this story has reminded us that it, it, it is the faithfulness of your people. It's the commitment of your people. It's the endurance and perseverance of your people that allows the generation to persist. Lord, there is hope for our generation. There is hope for our world. There is hope for America and all the rest of the world. If the people of God rise up every morning and every evening before they lay their head down, they call on the God of Samuel, the God of Hannah, who uses the people in the margins to do what no one expects them to do. So Lord, let us make sure we keep the flame burning. Let us make sure we keep the fire going keep the lights on to let the world know God is still in control and we are gonna be faithful through it all. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.